been in a series looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. And every week we've been looking at various topics of the work and or the person of the Holy Spirit. And the topic that we'll be taking a look at today is a subject of the Holy Spirit and fruitfulness. Um, it covers that passage that in some ways may be very, very familiar to you, maybe in some ways maybe overly familiar to you. It's the subject of the fruit of the Spirit. So right now, maybe some of you are immediately tempted to check out because you're like, oh, the fruit of the Spirit. Because if any of you had any background in church life or you ever went to VBS as a child or you went to Awanas, the thought of the fruit of the Spirit immediately jumps to mind like, bright colors and pictures of fruit and weird, cheesy stuff. And in your mind, you're immediately checking out, thinking, I'm just going to simply delete emails for the next 45 minutes. What I would suggest you to do is don't do that, um, but prayerfully ask God to help you to give, a, give you a new vision, a new understanding of what this section of Scripture has to say about the life of a follower of Jesus and really how that's rooted, not in us trying harder, but actually it's rooted within the life of God himself. So the problem is oftentimes over-familiarity uh, tends to breed a sense of boredom. That's one of the reasons why, again, if, if there's any inkling of like, oh, great, fruit of the Spirit, that sense, that attitude, that mentality may be linked to a sense of over-familiarity, which may be linked to a sense of boredom. You're bored with it. So... That is always a lethal combination. And again, if you think about that within the context of a relationship, if you are in a relationship with somebody, any time that relationship begins to become kind of defined by boredom, that's, it's on a path to death. So let's make sure that our hearts kind of respond rightly to the scripture and what God has to say. So what we're going to do, we're going to read the passage. In fact, I would like to invite you all to... Stand with me, we'll read the scripture, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. So one more time to stand. Let's all stand. I know some of you are like disrupted right now having to stand, but um, let's just posture our hearts in a place of receiving uh, what God has to say. I'm actually going to read this out of the New Living Translation. I typically read out of the uh, NEV, or um, that's not what I read. I don't know what it is I read. Anyways, ESV is what I typically read. Um, I'm going to read this out of New Living Translation. So if you don't have that translation right now, you can just listen, close your eyes, maybe just listen to what the passage has to say, and then I'll pray and we'll get to work looking at this. Galatians 5.22 starts off like this. He says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, as we read this passage, we, first of all, just address the reality that for some of us, this is a passage that we're all too familiar with, or at least we think we are. And we ask right now that you, by your spirit, would breathe a sense of newness to it for our hearts, for our lives, God, that we would be captured again in a new way by its depth, by its breadth. God, that we'd be transformed, we'd be changed. So help us, we pray, to receive all that you have for us. We commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't y'all grab a seat. 
Let me give a little bit of background here because I think it's helpful to know a little bit about what was happening. In, the, in other words, a little bit of the backstory. So when Paul talks about this concept of through the Spirit, you know, we'll get into kind of understanding and packing why the metaphor fruit, why does Paul use the, an agricultural type of a metaphor like fruit? We'll get to that in a moment. But um, what's the backstory? What's the background? In other words, what's happening here that kind of led up to this um, discussion or uh, monologue, if you would, on Paul's behalf about the subject of the Holy Spirit bringing about this sense of fruit or fruitfulness in people's lives? Well, the background basically goes something like this, because Paul is writing to a group of churches in a region called Galatia, which would be basically um, geographically in the modern-day country of Turkey. And it was within this region that Paul wrote this letter to that group of churches. Um, Predominantly, that ethnic group of people in those churches were actually non-Jews. So for the most part, especially from a guy like Paul, Jewish writers, they would have had one of two types of pictures in their mind. They would have either either broken people down into the category of either A, they're Jewish, or B, they're Gentile. Um, This church gathering, or these church gatherings, would have been predominantly Gentile, meaning non-Jewish. So you had this group of people that were coming to life, they were following Jesus, they were recognizing the fact that they've been forgiven of their sin, which for the most part, most Non-Jewish people would have followed a pathway uh, or, path, uh, or, or a lifestyle, I should say, of paganism, which meant that if, you know, all the things that you think about paganism, that would have been associated and attributed to these types of people. So they were coming out of paganism, following Jesus, finding life in Christ. Um, but something was happening within the church within that region of Galatia that was basically bringing some form of breakdown of the potency and the power and the life of that church or those churches within our region. And to the best of our historical knowledge, what we know is that there was a group of people within Jerusalem, the region of Jerusalem. So if you look on a map, Jerusalem is quite a far distance from the region of Turkey. Um, So people were actually traveling from the region of Jerusalem all the way up to the region of Galatia. Now, that's not a problem in of itself, but what the problem was, was the message that they were exporting from Jerusalem and then ultimately receiving or importing in the region of Galatia. So the message kind of went something like this. So what you had in Jerusalem, you had people that were coming to Jesus that for the most part, they were Jewish. In other words, they were trained, raised up, brought up in the understanding of the principles of Judaism. But it wasn't just your standard, everyday Jew that was coming to meet Jesus. It was also, there was a wave of Jewish teachers, Jewish religious leaders that were coming to meet Jesus. Many of them were probably Pharisees, meaning they were these religious, well-known teachers within the early church. So a lot of us, when we read our Bibles, we read, say, for example, the New Testament accounts, the Gospels, and we read, especially if you work from a a Sunday school background, and you think of the Pharisees as being the really bad guys. Well, in reality, that's totally false. So don't, don't ever think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. The Pharisees were actually the fundamentalists. They loved God. They loved God's word, and they wanted to secure and protect a nation before Yahweh. And so these were really, these were very ultra-fundamentalist type conservative followers of Yahweh. And so the problem was, when they were coming to faith in Jesus, they were still clinging to all of their strong fundamentalisms. The problem came into being when they would leave and they would interact with these Gentile people, these people that were raised or brought up within paganism. So what was happening was these Jewish leaders, we would call them the Judaizers, historically is the way they would be identified, 
these Judaizers, these uh, former uh, Pharisees now became uh, Jesus followers, were going into the regions surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, Galatia happened to be one of them. And they were telling the Gentile believers, hey, that's awesome you guys have found Jesus. Um, the problem is, is your Christianity is not thorough enough. It's not, it's not intense enough. It's not righteous enough. And they're like, that's weird. We, we never were told that it was not enough. In other words, you're not measuring up to what it really means to be followers of Jesus. So if you've ever been in a church context where someone comes and you're like, hey, you're not praying enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. In other words, you're not measuring up enough in your lifestyle. There's a tendency, you know what that feels like, is it oftentimes feels like oppression. It oftentimes feels like I'm not doing enough for God. And then you begin to either get with the game and start doing all this other stuff. And oftentimes you look at other people that aren't doing enough with a sense of like demeaning attitude. Or you begin to just realize I'm, I'm not doing enough. Therefore, you get overcome by a sense of despair. Well, that's basically what was happening with the church in Galatia. Some were getting arrogant. Some were becoming uh, having a sense of where their minds are being puffed up. Others were probably being destroyed by despair. So Paul was basically writing to them uh, and describing the fact that really what you need is you need to understand what the point of Jesus coming to this world was. And aside from salvation, aside from all this, Jesus comes and gives his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit brings about a type of life that's different than the life that you have. And Paul kind of summarizes the problem uh, at around verse 15. And Paul describes in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, the problem with all you guys is that the lifestyle that you're living is actually leading you to bite and devour one another. So on the one hand, you had uh, an extreme form of legalism. So if you want to look at it this way, there are two extremes that you can sort of break down in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. You can describe it like this, life by devoted rule following. So life, if you're part of the first group, you would be kind of viewed as sort of this religious, those that would follow these inherited rules, uh, those that would be very meticulous about how you live your life, how much you read your Bible, how oftentimes you go to prayer meetings, how devoted you are to preaching the gospel. You would really be careful to watch and monitor your life. So in a modern-day context, we would look at this and say, this is sort of an ultra-fundamentalist type of a Christian. This is the Christian that only listens to Christian music, that doesn't go to R-rated movies unless it's simply called The Passion of the Christ. These are the type of Christians that in very uber conservative type senses, they are only allowed to wear denim dresses and put, if you're a woman, put your hair up in a bun, uh, or you're not allowed to wear tattoos because that's just simply sinful, uh, and you have sort of this ultra-conservative type of a mentality. The opposite side is that you have those that would basically kind of define as life by doing whatever one wants. And Paul describes it in verses 13 to 21. Just catch a little bit of a flavor of this. Here's what Paul says in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it kind of sets it in a little bit of a direction. So Paul seems to imply that there may be those, if they're not careful, to say, well, I'm not part of this religious group of people, then what part of the group I am I with? And Paul would say, as he's thinking this out, there may be a tendency to swing over to an entirely different side. And an entirely different side happens to be one where I would describe as being irreligious. This is sort of the mentality where they make up their own rules, make up their own laws. And we would describe that as 
freedom. So on the one hand, you would have those that are the religious, these are legalized people, wear jeans, shirts, wear their hair up in a bun, only watch Fox News, they only listen to Christian music, watch the Dynasty, and the opposite side of this are those that would basically look at their lives and say, life by doing whatever I want, these are the irreligious people, these are the people that constantly question laws, these are the people that are constantly looking down upon religious people, these are the type of people that might be more prone to get tattoos, drink alcohol, listen to bad music, actually probably burn Christian music and make fun of Christian music. You get the idea. For the most part, some of you are like, that sounds like Calvary Slow. Yes, that's my point. All right? So I would say as a whole, Calvary Slow is not part of this religious context. For the most part, most of us would probably say, yeah, I identify with sort of the irreligious group of people. But here's, here's the rub in all of this. Here's the rub. See, because both the religious people would say, look, we want freedom. Freedom comes through doing all of this stuff that the Torah demands. Uh, really identified by what Paul would say, circumcision. I've got to get circumcised. I've got to follow these laws and rules and rituals. That's where freedom's found. And then the opposite extreme would say, no, freedom actually doesn't come from doing all those things. You guys are all restrictive. You're uptight. You're always frustrated and stern and whatnot. The life really comes through being irreligious, making up rules as you want, doing whatever you want. That's true freedom. That's true freedom. And the problem is, is that Paul is basically saying our problem comes from how we define freedom. Our freedom, our understanding of freedom oftentimes is skewed. And the way that we oftentimes define freedom within the American dream is to do whatever we want, when we want, how we want, because really life centers around me. And what Paul is saying is that actually all of that is something that leads to a sense of servitude or masterhood or a sense where we are enslaved. And that's Paul's whole point. In other words, you're really not free because true freedom, according to Paul, true freedom is found by being able to love one another. So the fact of the matter is, if you kind of break this down, the irreligious people, the ones that are uptight and always concerned about someone breaking a rule, they could never envision themselves sitting down and having a nice barbecue with a bunch of people that have tattoos and are vaping. <laughs> never would that happen. Because in their mind, like, oh my gosh, my kids are going to like start doing drugs at the age of two. This is not okay. But at the same time, those that are irreligious are going to look at the religious people and be like, I don't ever want to hang out around those people because they're so stiff and so legalized and those are the type of people I don't want. Do you realize what's happening here? There is an inability. The word for that is mastery. You are enslaved. There's an inability to love one another. You're a slave. You're a slave either as a religious person, you're a slave as an irreligious person. You're a slave. The same common denominator unites you. So you really have a lot more in common with each other than you ever really thought. But what Paul is saying is there's actually another way. There's a third way. And the third way has to do with not life by way of being religious, by way of uh, amassing more laws, no matter how biblically oriented they may seem or may feel. And not life by way of chucking out all the laws and doing whatever it is is written on the tablet of your own heart, living any way that you want, being your own master of your own destiny, it's sort of meant having a mentality in your mind, just like forget everybody else, don't think about it, don't worry about what the thing is, just do what you want. Paul's saying actually true freedom comes by way of the Holy Spirit. True freedom comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul basically introduces as the other way. So, 
That's where Paul then begins to say the Holy Spirit actually can be known and recognized by tangible, what he would describe as manifestations, or we get the word fruit. The Holy Spirit then begins to be seen when we submit to this other way that's not religious, that's not irreligious, but that's focused on the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, then there should become these tangible evidences of this life of God that will one day come. So if you think of it this way, one day God will promise, will bring this kingdom. This kingdom will come. This kingdom will look like religious and irreligious coming to a table and sharing a meal with each other. That's what this table will look like. That's what this kingdom will look like. It will look like rich and poor having a meal with each other. It will look like black and white coming together, showing love with one another. It will look like all of these extremes that we see constantly dividing our culture done away with in, in its entirety. That's, and, and really, the central defining element in all of this will be King Jesus. King Jesus. There will be those that will not want King Jesus, and they will not be part of that kingdom because they will continue to be defined by their own forms of biting and devouring one another. And so what Paul is basically introducing is saying that there is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings this sense of life. And he describes this life in tangible terms as Fruit. So first of all, let's take a look at some things in terms of what is this fruit that we're talking about. So I thought it would be helpful to actually just read through the list. And again, some of you may be overly familiar with it. I hope you're not. What I would hope is that you just maybe listen to it with new ears and just ponder it, think about it, uh, listen to what he has to say. First of all, in some ways it kind of reads like a virtue list. And if you're familiar with any like uh, ancient Greek uh, literature, really ancient literature from a lot of different places as well, you would find that a lot of times some of the greatest minds in those cultures would write sort of virtue lists. They would describe, here's some good traits, characteristic traits, that if you were to follow these things, so in a lot of ways, the fruit of the Spirit read to some degree like a virtue list. But don't simply reduce it to a virtue list, because that would be not a good thing, because it's far more than that. But here's what he goes on to say. He says, first of all, that it brings forth, the Holy Spirit brings forth love. Now, I want you to go back a little bit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 19. Let me just read this to you. Galatians 5, verses 16 and 19. Because Paul, no doubt, is actually comparing and contrasting two various lists. On the one hand, you have what you might surmise as a virtue list. On the other hand, you might surmise is more like a vice list. Or in other words, actions that are not Good. So take a look at and listen to what he has to say in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 19. He says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Think about that for a second. The Holy Spirit wants to bring about life, righteousness, goodness. But there's a desire. There's these desires inside of us. And if you're really honest with yourself, we've all felt that to some degree. We've all felt that there are these desires that oftentimes we have, that if we indulge in those desires, those desires will actually maybe give us immediate sensation or gratification in the moment, but in the long run, actually will lead to a feeling of brokenness, maybe in some others' lives, or a sense of complete despair and defilement upon ourselves. I mean, just think about that. Think about desires maybe that you've given into recently, maybe the past week, maybe even like past eight hours, maybe in the past, you know, 20 minutes, that you've given into. And those desires, even though they promise much, by giving into those things, they actually misled you. They betrayed you, in other words. We all have those desires. And Paul is basically saying there is, in our makeup, 
sort of complexity. On the one hand, we have these desires that are constantly betraying us, constantly promising us much, and only satisfying us little, and in the long run, leaving us totally broken human beings. And so Paul basically goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is on the other end bringing forth life. The, the, the flesh or these fleshly desires or natures is constantly deceiving us and leading us away from God. The Spirit wants to bring us back to bring us alive. And it says, and the Spirit then gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is at work cleaning out our bad desires and giving us new desires. This is really what the Bible describes as we've been given a new heart. For a Christian, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who is not just simply doing better things, but a Christian is one who, is do, who has a new heart. Do you understand the difference between that? Because you can train yourself to do better things or to have behavior that is better than what it was before. But that's really not being a new person. There's a difference between that. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of, in one of his books, and I'm not going to just going to paraphrase it, he describes what a Christian really is. It's like, it's not like God just training a horse to do new tricks. It's like God making a Pegasus out of a horse. I love that image because it's like, it's not just training a horse to, you know, lift up its leg and learn some sort of new trick. But it's now a horse actually being able to do something that horses don't do, which is fly. That's what the Holy Spirit does in each one of us. That's what the Bible describes as salvation. God saving us from a past of brokenness, saving us from desires that deceive and mislead, and saving us for a God that gives us life. And what Paul is saying is, verse 19, he says, and when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And then he goes on to describe. Again, here's sort of a list. The desires, when they're followed, they lead to sexual morality, impurity, and lustful desires. So the top three on Paul's list can be summarized in the form of the word lust. So again, if you're taking notes, if you're thinking about comparisons here, the first list, the first word on the list in terms of virtue happens to be the word what? It's the first word on the list of the virtue, if you want to think of it as virtues, it's the word love, right? You guys following? You guys here? Fruit of the Spirit is? Good, good, good. Just want to make sure. All right. Um, Fruit of the Spirit is love, but the work of the flesh is lust. That's an interesting comparison that basically Paul is trying to point out. And it's interesting because when you think about love and lust in contrast with one another, love on the one hand, if you define it this way, love is this idea that basically says, I will gladly be consumed in order for your benefit. That's what love is. If you think about love, you break down love and its component parts, love is this composite that basically says, I will gladly lay my life down, I will gladly be consumed so that you can be benefited. Lust, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. Lust basically says, I will gladly consume you for my benefit. That's what lust is. Like, lust is, for the most part, what defines the culture we live in. We are a lustful culture. And don't just think lust in terms of sexuality. It is that. It's what oftentimes predominantly it leads to. It's why Paul lists lust in all of these other sexual types of ways. But when you think about it, that's what lust is. Whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's booty call, whether it's friends with benefits, whether it's, you know, Ashley Madison, whatever it is, it's all driven by a sense that says, I will consume you so that I will be benefited. In other words, my benefit will come to me, be derived to me from eating and devouring, biting and devouring you. Love, on the other hand, is totally different. 
So you think about it this way. Jesus on the cross is absorbing something. What's he absorbing? He's absorbing mockery, shame. He's naked. People are mocking him. He's absorbing a sense of betrayal. People have betrayed him. They turn their back on him. He's absorbing pain physically. He's got nails in his hand and his feet. He's uh, absorbing all what the Bible describes as the sin, the condemnation, the brokenness of the world coming upon him. What you have on the cross is this perfect picture of somebody being consumed for the other's benefit. Lust says, I will devour you for my benefit. Lust is exactly what vampires do. Just thinking about this. Like, our culture is like obsessed with zombies and vampires. And I think the reason why, again, this is my theory, is that we are obsessed with vampires because they resonate with the core of how we act towards others and how others act towards us. We're always consuming others. We're always being consumed by others for someone else's benefit. And we're tired of it, so we become vampires to those who are vampires to us. The problem with vampires is vampires are not human. They dehumanize, reduce. And the reality of the gospel is the gospel comes to us and says, we're going to lift you, raise you out of your vampire-like state and make you children again. The gospel does. It gives us life. So what we see is that there's this contrast between love and Lust, but Paul says love comes from this working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Second, joy. Joy is a sense that is hope-filled confidence because, really, if you want to think about it this way, joy is always, and you look at this in the New Testament, joy is always anchored in, a, in an event. It's anchored in this event that happened post-crucifixion. It's the resurrection. Jesus rose again from the dead, and the New Testament theology that rose out of that was as Jesus rose again, so will one day we who follow this Messiah. In other words, everything that happened to the Messiah will one day happen to Messiah's followers. So in other words, because Messiah suffered, we will suffer. But that's not where the story ends. But because Messiah suffered and died and rose again, we will, as followers of Messiah, we will suffer. Some of you are suffering right now. And some of us gets better because we will die. But it's not where the story ends because the story goes on to define the fact that we will one day rise just as the Messiah himself rose. And that gives us this great sense of joy. In other words, all that we endure, all that we suffer, all that we go through, all the pain, all the angst, all the anguish that we find ourselves in the middle of in this life, whether by things that have come upon us that we didn't ask for, we didn't go searching for, it just simply came upon us, and therefore we are to some degree absorbing it, bringing it into our lives. The hope is, is that one day, that as Jesus rose, so we will one day rise. That brings a sense of joy. Peace. Peace is this confidence that God is at work and that he's lovingly and powerfully putting all things back together again in our lives. It's really the idea that Paul says that in Romans 8, all things work together for good. You know that verse that was like on your grandma's coffee cup. Again, to the degree that we forget how amazing it is that Jesus is at work taking all of these things in our lives that are constantly circulating around our lives of brokenness and hurt and pain. And one day he promises to make all of these things work together for good. That's the picture of a God that is putting together a life that's filled with brokenness, shatteredness, 
nothing's lost on him. He puts it all back together again. So that brings us a sense of peace. Like he's, he's at work. He's reordering. He's organizing all of this. Patience. Patience is one of those things we just simply do not, most of the most, most part, have. Some of us by nature, some of you by nature, just simply like, like, like you're pretty mellow people. So it's easy for people to look at you and be like, oh my gosh, you're so filled with peace. But in reality, you just, you might, you might not talk that much, right? You might just have a calm, mellow, common demeanor around you, but inside, you're like, you're, you're like about to explode, and you're like casting people out, and you're like, no. Nah. But the outside, you're like all mellow and calm. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're all peaceful. So again, sometimes some of these things, these virtues, can sometimes be mimicked, right? In a very natural sense, be mimicked. I mean, someone can look at a dog and be like, my dog's got the joy of the Holy Spirit. Like, He's always jumping, and he's always excited. It's really not joy of the Holy Spirit, of course. It's just an animal instinct. But the point of the matter is, is that these are fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are the things, the very things that are part of God in these birthing, bringing forth them within our lives. Kindness. This is just the state of being kind-hearted, kind to people. Uh, not rude, not arrogant, not boastful, not putting others down. Again, these are things that, you know, again, I, I read this list, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, 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 you know, I violate all of these things on a regular basis. But, the, again, this is not constant. This is not, like, where we whip out our report card and we compare things. Because at the end of the day, we, we are all failing in some of these areas. But the hope is, is that as we submit to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then begins to birth and bring forth and work these things out in our lives. Goodness. Um, I think of what are qualities when you look at other people and think, oh, that's, that's a really, really good person. I think of superheroes when I think of goodness because we see a superhero and superhero kind of lives out these traits of uh, selflessness where they are giving themselves or absorbing someone else's debt or pain or incurring upon themselves someone else's sense of anguish so that another person could be given life or be given help or be given rescue. Um, we look at that. That's, that's good. And again, as the Holy Spirit begins to work these things out in our lives, there should be a sense where we are growing in a level of goodness. Faithfulness. And this is just kind of the idea, I think, of follow-through, being faithful, having fidelity in a sense. Like, we are committed to our word. In other words, your word really is not just simply rhetoric. It's not empty rhetoric. In other words, when you say something, that you're going to follow through with that. There is a sense of dependability, of stability about your life. If you're somebody that's always having to like constantly underscore your words, like I promise you, I promise, I promise, I promise, pinky promise that I'm not going to not be there. I will absolutely be there. Then the fact of the matter is it's very likely that you're not a person of your word and that there is a constant need for you to constantly reiterate how you are going to be that. Again, the Holy Spirit just works out in our lives a sense of fidelity, faithfulness, where we become, there becomes a, a sinking up between what we say and what we do. Does that make sense? A sinking between what we say and what we do. I think we're really honest. Most of the time, there's a complete disconnect and incongruity between what we say and what we do. Because what we say is completely different than what we do. And that's kind of the idea, I think, of faithfulness, gentleness. Uh, this is just sort of a, a mentality where I think of the opposite as like bullheadedness or somebody that is constantly clumsy with their words, maybe not even clumsy, like intentionally rude or uh, putting others down or saying, I mean, we're moving into a political year, of course, right? And this is where it gets really ugly. And really what you see oftentimes, some, and I'm going to name names that are kind of on the front runner, don't have the quality of gentleness. I'll just put it at that, right? Some of you kind of figure that out like, Let's see, who is that? I have no idea. But the point of the matter is, is, is Jesus is gentle. 
I mean, he, there's a gentleness about Christ. I mean, there is a tender, there's a toughness about Jesus as well. There's a tenderness about Jesus. There's a toughness about Jesus. But there's a sense of gentleness. And this is something that I've, I've, I've been really challenged with, honestly, as a pastor over the past five or six years, just reading books on this and thinking about this. Like, I want to be a pastor that is known for my gentleness, not for one that is like rough and rude and pushy and harsh and prickly and sharp, but one that has words that bring forth a sense of peace and calm and wholeness. This is what the work of the Holy Spirit does. It brings gentleness. And finally, self-control. This is just really exactly what it is. It's control of yourself. The flip side of this is we're not in control of ourselves. We are just quick with what we have to say. We're always uh, just letting whatever comes to our mind just out. There's not a lot of control over what we say. And again, my point is not in any way to kind of compare uh, grade cards with this and somehow walk away feel full of despair. The idea is to say, this is what the Holy Spirit begins to work out of our lives as we submit to him. The flip side of this, the flip side of this, as Paul would say, is he contrasts the flesh with the spirit. The flip side of all of this work that Paul just described in his virtues is summarized in that phrase where Paul says, but if you walk according to the flesh, you will bite and devour one another. So think about this just for a moment. Are there people in your life right now that that would be the way that you would describe or define the relationship? It's biting and devouring. Think of sinking your teeth into them rhetorically or physically, hopefully not physically, or metaphorically. And the idea is that you just want to terrorize and rip them apart. That's what it means to bite and devour. Paul says that actually that attitude, that action has nothing to do with the life of God. God is not a vicious wolf trying to bite and devour us. God, in fact, quite is the opposite. He's a gentle, like a lamb, savior that comes and submits himself to those that will bite and devour him. Why? Because he is love. He literally is consumed so that we can be benefited. This is the picture, the image that we get from Jesus. So let me move on to the next question, which is why the metaphor of fruit? And I think there's two thoughts that come to mind. Why the metaphor of fruit? Paul doesn't necessarily exactly say why. I mean, there's lots of passages throughout the Bible that describe agriculture and so on and so forth because the Bible is actually filled with it. The Bible land, uh, Israel was an agricultural type of community. They planted everything, they built everything, they made everything by way of the crops that they raised and so on and so forth. So it's very possible that that's just simply the reason. But I think as you go through this idea, there's a lot of good reasons as to why. I think two that come to my mind. One, fruitfulness actually involves being rooted in the right spot or the right soil. So first of all, a good plant or plant that's going to grow something is actually rooted in the right soil. Now, the soil might not look really great. It might look dirty because that's what soil looks like, all soil. It's like, it looks dirty. I know, I know I've heard people tell me there's a difference between soil and dirt, but the fact of the matter is it all makes your hands Filthy. But the point of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter because what really matters is what's in the soil. Is it nutrient-rich? Does it lead to that which gives life? Or is it something which our lives are planted in soil? So think about it, what surrounds us. What are we surrounding ourselves with? Maybe to take another layer. What are the influences that you are purposefully allowing or intentionally allowing or maybe intentionally not disallowing? There's a double negative, so it's probably really bad grammar. But what are things that are happening in your life? In other words, that you are in the soil that is not life-giving. It's actually corrosive. It's destructive to your life. 
In other words, it, it amounts to maybe it's, it's soil that's filled with Roundup. It's filled with toxins, filled with poison. So if you're a Christian, life is inside you. God's wanting to bring forth all of these things, and fruitfulness would come out of your life. The problem is, is that you are constantly suppressing the fruitfulness in the life of God because of the soil that your life is steeped in. It's one of the reasons why Paul would say, don't quench the Spirit of God. I mean, it's, it's a shocking thing when we think about this, is that Paul is saying, that, look, we have this ability to actually quench, to say no, to hinder, to limit the fruitfulness that God wants to bring about in our lives. And a lot of times, I think it has to do with the fact that we are choosing to root ourselves in soil that's actually corrosive and destructive. Uh, I think what Paul is saying is that, you know, think about the concept, the picture of the imagery, the metaphor of plants. Plants seem to be in, right? So the second thing, I think fruitfulness also involves cultivation. So, in other words, on the one hand, you look at a, any type of fruit tree, and any type of fruit tree is not forcefully trying to create an apple. In other words, you never look at a fruit tree and they're like, oh my gosh, it's like straining to create apples. There's no strain going on whatsoever. All of a sudden, it just comes out. Across from or where we live, there's a little open space and there's these ap- um, avocado trees. Apricot. I wish there were apricot trees. There were avocado trees. And uh, we have deer that come out there all the time. All the time, every day, like, there's a certain time throughout the day, there's a family of them, some of them is up to six, and it's awesome, I always watch them, there's a couple little bambies out there now, it's really cute, and they always sit under the tree, and they, they eat the low-hanging uh, avocados, um, which is deeply troubling to me, but the point of the matter is, I realize they're God's creatures, and they're really cute, and God loves them, but I, you know, I mean, I'm like, those are, those are like a dollar a piece, like, don't, don't eat my avocados, like, those are, those are mine, and it's not okay for me to see you eat you know, it was my it was golden fruit. But the point of the matter is, is that that tree will not produce its type of fruit because uh, there's, there's, there's no one that actually lives there. So in a sense, there's no one really cultivating. And if someone's really cultivating that, really wanting to see the fruitfulness of those trees, they'll put fences around them. They'll guard those trees. Uh, they'll make sure that there's someone out there watching to ensure that there's not deer coming out, coming down from the mountain to eat these things because the aim, the goal is to have fruitful trees. And so in a sense, there is a a sense of partnering with God, connecting with God, letting God, asking God, God, what are things that are maybe in my life that need to be cultivated out? Uh, God, maybe branches in my life that you need to trim, but at the same time, what are some things I need to kind of remove because they actually are hindrances to the true life, the fruit that you want to bring out in my life? So some of us, it's, you know, if I, I mentioned this first service, if you think about it this way, you need to know what is the roundup that you are inadvertently spraying on your life. Do you know what it is? Like, do you know what are the things that maybe you are engaging in, things that you're putting in front of your eyes, what type of screen time habits that you have that are actually amounting to nothing more than roundup? Every time you turn your device on, it's like spraying roundup over your life. Do you guys get the, the metaphor? Do you guys get that? Follow that? What are those things that we may need to cultivate out of our lives in order to be these people, because the end result, we will bite and devour. We'll bite and devour each other, or oftentimes what ends up happening is that there's not others right now that we are actively engaged in biting and devour. We oftentimes, because we feel so trashy about our own lives, 
We bite and devour ourselves. We feel full of despair. And the flip side of that is there's an alternative to biting and devouring. There's an alternative to being super religious. There's an alternative to being irreligious. The alternative is trusting the work of the Holy Spirit to bring forth these life-giving attitudes and motivations in our lives. And finally, I'll finish on this. What, what, what motivates this fruit? What brings this about? Just think about this in terms of an analogy that um, like I already alluded to earlier, that some of these vice, or I say virtues, um, could easily be mimicked or mocked. I mean, we can, we can live these things out, and it's very easy for some people to look at other people's lives and be like, oh my gosh, they're so like God because they're always so kind. When in reality, they might not be really kind, it's just their disposition, all right? But inwardly, they're criticizing you, they're judging you, they're filled with hatred towards you, they're just deeply bitter, but you will never get that bitterness because of the disposition. They're, you know, they're steward, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're tendencies of being able to act out, live according to certain lifestyles is one of their dispositions is kind, mellow, nice, calm. It's not necessarily the fruit of the Spirit. But here's my point. Um, if you think about it this way, it's possible to take, for example, the subject of kindness. If you wanted to be a kinder person, that there's a couple different ways in which you can go about this. On the one hand, you can be kind on a level whereby you can train yourself to say, Rude people are horrible people. I don't want to be rude. I want to be kind because the opposite of kindness is rudeness. Let me, let me say this as a side. If you're a mom or dad and you're training your kid, a lot of times parents have a tendency to train their kids like this. So, so let, me, let me just suggest to you. If you train your kid in a way that basically says, you know, Johnny, don't be uh, a rude person because we all hate rude people. Everybody hates rude people. Nobody wants to be around rude people. So be kind. So what you've just done is you've actually trained your little kid to hate, to despise rude people with this motivation that says, I'm going to be really kind. You see what you've just done? You've actually trained them, you've motivated them to not be kind because kindness is good, but you've motivated them to be kind because rude people, you're to hate. They're the bad, they're the scum of the earth. They're the ones that you should never, ever reach out to and embrace and touch and be a part of. So don't be like that. The other opposite end of the spectrum is to say, you're going to train your kid to not be uh, like rude people because uh, being kind is far more acceptable than rudeness. So it's not so much focus on any particular person. It's a focus upon how you want to be perceived and accepted. In other words, the idea of who's going to like you, who's not going to like you. You want to be liked, right? Son, daughter, you want to be liked. The way that you get to be liked is you've got to be really, really kind. And if you're not really, really kind... In other words, if you're mean, if you're grumpy, if you're rude, everyone's going to hate you. So what you've just done is you've trained your child to be kind, to be nice, for very self-focused reasons. So here's the question. What's going to happen when they're really rude? And they're going to be really rude. They're either going to slip into a deep state of despair because like, I'm just a really, really, really bad person. I can't get out of this. I'm in this like, black hole of not-niceness. And my mom told me that we hate bad people. We hate rude people, and now she hates me too. But the alternative way is to basically say, to root your kindness in something higher, something greater, which Paul would say is the Holy Spirit. Because when we understand the type of God that God is, that God is kind. How did God treat his enemies? Ready for the shocking finality of this message? The final closing scene, God treats his enemies with kindness. 
He treated you with kindness. You were nothing like God. You didn't act like God. You didn't serve God. In fact, quite the opposite. All of us, the Bible describes, we are all by nature are sinners. We all by nature have consumed others for our own benefit. We all have done this. We all have not loved God. We all have not loved our neighbor. We all have brought a form of consumption, a vampire nature into our own life so that we would benefit at the expense of others. And yet what we have is this breaking in of the darkness, this bright light that God comes and says, I'm going to show you a different story. I will be kind to those who are unkind. I will be loving to those that are unlovely. By doing so, God comes and he is consumed by us. But this becomes the means and the basis by which we are saved. And this is what we see. This is what Paul basically means in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? The idea is that what motivates us is really important. Because, let me just put it in one other final context. If you are motivated by a mentality that just simply feeds your arrogance and feeds your condescension towards all these other bad, unkind people, you will never, ever, ever be free to love those that are unkind. You follow what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? If your motivation to be kind is because you don't want to be like those grubby, rude people out there, then you could never be free. In other words, you are still a slave to your little rules. You could never truly sit down at a table and love people that are unkind and rude. You can never do that because the rules that you set up disallow you to do that. You are a slave to those rules. On the other hand, if you live in such a way whereby you feed your selfishness or your narcissism because you know that the way to being liked is by being kind, the moment anybody is unkind to you, you, you just simply crumple. You fall down. You're like, oh my gosh, I thought I've done everything. I could have been nice. and They were nice to me. And what did I do? I'm failing. Everybody hates me. Your life is falling apart because you feel like everybody's judging you. You're not free to love those that judge you. But the flip side of it is this alternative that says, when we're motivated by the fact that we have a God that was kind to us, this liberates us from these petty little prisons we find ourselves in to actually love others even though they are unkind to us and even though they may despise us. Because that's the story we find ourselves brought into, adopted into by grace. That we have a God that loves us even though we were unkind to him, even though we were unkind to his neighbor and our neighbor, that we have a God that loved us even though we didn't love him rightly. We didn't show him the respect and honor that he's due. And even though we didn't show him the honor, the respect that he's due, he still condescends, comes down to our level and says, I'll give you life at my expense. I'm not a vampire. I'm a God that gives you life. I'm remaking you in my image. This is how the gospel sets us free. Paul says, this is what the Holy Spirit births, brings forth in your life. So to understand, 
as you submit to this God and you submit your lives to the working of this Holy Spirit in your life, these are the fruits that will begin to be manifested and brought forth in your lives. I want to invite you to just come to this God. We're going to respond now by singing. We respond by partaking in the communion. And we take the communion every week as a reminder to us that this bread and cup that we dip the bread into is a reminder that we have a God that even though he was this whole, one God, he comes into this world to be broken. But it's in the action of being broken that now we have bread in hand to eat. That bread in hand we eat reminds us of the life-sustaining hope that we have in him. Does that make sense? And it also is what feeds us to remind us that we have a God that will help us because he's present in us to help us to love our neighbors, to help us to love those that are unkind, to help us to love those that are constantly having a bad opinion about us, that at the end of the day, it does not ultimately define us. So I'm going to invite you to come to this table to worship, to respond to this God. So why don't we all stand? Worship team, come on up. And uh, if you're here and there's anything you need prayer for going on in your life, we have some people over off to the cross that would love to pray for you. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to kind of pull out of the crowd and just kind of get before God, we have some communion in the front. You can just come partake of that and sit down and get on your knees and just worship God, respond to him. So let's, let's sing. Let's respond. Let's give him a heart. Let's put ourselves in a posture of openness to God and say, God, we need you. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all at. We're all at the same spot. No one's any better than anyone else. It doesn't matter if we're kind of of a religious bent or we're of an irreligious bent. The fact is, we need Jesus, and Jesus heals. So let's respond to him.